0: I know why we're a little thin today. It's because everyone is sick. At least I think everyone is sick. When I'm sick, I think everyone is sick. Isn't that how you feel too? How many of you have been sick so far this winter? Okay, only some of you. Well, I warn you. I warn you. If you receive what I have received this last week, and what I believe Colleen and Jeannie received, and what I think my wife might now be receiving sadly, sorry honey, she's not here, then you are not going to be very happy. Um, I won't go into symptoms, but it's, it's just, I, I just couldn't stop coughing. So there you have it. Merry Christmas. But hey, on a more serious note, um, my, my time of rest also popped me on the bed to just flip through the television, and as I did, I, I saw what you saw this week and that is the uh, the horrific unspeakable massacre in San Bernardino and subsequently in uh, the shootout in Redlands, California. I know Redlands quite well. I I spent many a time in Redlands coming down the mountain from Forest Home when I was on staff and back in the late 90s. Um folks, that's 1 hour away. 1 hour away. A terrorist attack on our on our country. And uh, details are still coming in. Uh, but uh, we, one thing sh- for sure, it's, it's not a workplace violence incident, as some would uh, have us believe. Um, there are evil people among us, and they subscribe to an evil religion and ideology. And because of that, they are inspired to do evil by the devil himself. And we need to be watchful and mindful and prayerful that God will continue to protect our our nation and our community. Amen. I I just I can't even imagine how how the pastors of San Bernardino preached today. For there were many, many Christians who were killed in that attack. And many, many churches gather this morning, uh, less a few people who they loved. Let's always keep that in mind. The title of today's message is The Purim Party, the Purim Pain. Purim, you will soon learn, is a Jewish holiday, the likes of which was born out of the book of Esther. And today we come to the final installment in the book of Esther where we learn what happened as a result of the great victory of the Jewish people over Haman and his sympathizers. Would you please stand with me as we read from Esther chapter 9, We're going to begin in verse 13, backtracking just a bit from where Pastor Tom left off. And we're going to continue to the end of the book, though this morning we'll only read together as we stand just a portion of that. Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king... Let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. And the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of fasting, of feasting, and gladness. Verse 18, but the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, And on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday for sending presents to one another. Verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly The fourteenth and the fifteenth days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, and the month, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast purr, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. Verse 25. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter, the king did, that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on Haman's own head and that he, should, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. And so they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to their written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these two days should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. You may be seated. Verse 13 again. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, that is the 14th of Adar, according to today's 13th of Adar's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. You know, for it's really for reasons not specified in the text. We don't know why Esther asked for this request. But for reasons not specified, she requested that what her adopted father Mordecai had decreed in the previous couple chapters, chapter eight, I believe it was, what he had decreed that the Jews, instead of Haman's sympathizers, that the Jews could rise up and go after those who would attack them or who would come up against them, that Esther had gone to the king and said, King, we need one more day to do this. Perhaps there remained hundreds of pro-Haman supporters in the capital that had not come out to fight. So she wanted an extension. And not only did she want an extension of the fighting, she wanted to expose an extension so that she could expose the corpses of Haman's sons on the 14th of Adar to serve as a visual reminder that Jewish persecution would not be tolerated. The king grants her request in verse 15. And the Jews who were in Shushan, that is the capital, they gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Verse 15 indicates that in addition to the 500 men that had been killed on the 13th of Adar, Now an additional 300 men, on this second day of fighting, an additional 300 men, Haman sympathizers, were added to those killed in combat. As for the rest of the Jewish people, those who were outside of the capital, we read verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives. They had rest from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Things going on here. And we'll see it actually in the next verse. Go to the next verse for just a moment. Verse 17. This, the killing of the 75,000, was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan the capital, assembled on the 13th day as well as the 14th day to fight. And on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Okay, now go back to verse 15 and 16 for just a moment. So you see there a little bit of a difference in how the battle was conducted. In the capital, they fought two days. Out in the villages, in the rural areas of the 127 provinces of Persia, they fought on the first day only. In the capital, they fought two days and they killed a total of 800 men. Out in the provinces, 127 provinces, they fought one day and they killed 75,000 men. You might look at that and say, wow, that, that sounds quite excessive. But let's not forget how large the Persian Empire was take a look at this map for just a moment take a look at the 3 million square miles that encompassed the Persian Empire at the time of Xerxes from India to Greece to Ethiopia they ruled over 50 million people it accounted for 44% of the world's population higher than any other world empire in human history so when it is said when it is said that, in a, that 75,000 were killed among all of the provinces of Persia, that only represents .0015% of the population. In fact, if we divide that 75,000 figure and we divide it by the 127 provinces in all of Persia, it comes out to about 590 people per province. A number not unlike the people that had died in the capital itself. I don't mean to underestimate the number. I don't mean to underestimate the slaughter that the Jews conducted over their enemies. But I do mean to put it in perspective. 75,000 is a lot of people. But you know what's a lot more? One million. One million Jews were living in the Persian Empire at the time of Xerxes. That's the estimate of most scholars. Had Haman's decree gone through, and not Mordecai's, had Haman's decree gone through, one million people, 2% of the population, would have been slaughtered on this day. Instead, only 75,000 died. Verse 17, this, that is to say, the killing of the 75,000, as we've read, was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested, and they had feasting and gladness. But the Jews at the capital, they assembled on the 13th and the 14th, and on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. The author summarizes part of this again in verse 19, verse 19 now, (coughs) Therefore, the Jews of the villages, the provinces, who dwelt in the unwalled towns, celebrated on the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Why is this significant? Why why is the author spending so much time on this? Well, he's about to set up, he's about to tee up, if you will, the holiday of Purim. And why it is that this holiday was celebrated not just on the 14th of Adar, but also on the 15th of Adar. And it is because the battle was waged in different ways in the kingdom. In the capital, it went on for two days. Out in the villages, it went on for just one day. It's interesting, too, because history sets up history now sets up this Jewish custom, which lasts even to the present day and maintains some of this significance. Because, you know, as it's celebrated today, as we'll learn in just a moment, in walled cities, in cities where there were walls in uh, during the time of, of uh, biblical Israel and ancient Persia, the Jewish people that live in those cities that were walled during the time of the exile, they celebrate Purim on uh, the 14th uh, and 15th of Adar. But those people who are out in the villages, those people who live in unwalled cities, literally to this day, only celebrated on the 14th of Adar. So just a matter of uh, interesting history there. Let's take a look, though, at how it was established. Verse 20, and Mordecai wrote these things, and he sent letters to all the Jews Near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the fourteenth and the fifteenth days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday. Next slide. That they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another, and gifts to the poor. After the great victory over Haman's allies, Mordecai the prime minister, he wrote a letter to all the Jews in all the provinces of Persia. And he said in that letter that these two days of victory, the 14th and the 15th of Adar, these two days of feasting, if you will, the day after the victories, should now be celebrated for all time by the Jewish people. In effect... Mordecai was creating, he's creating a national holiday in addition to the many religious holidays that were already outlined in the Torah. Now people were slow to accept this change and even early Jewish history suggests that some Jews were reluctant to embrace the holiday i know modern jews today modern uh, even messianic jews today who are even reluctant to embrace this holiday because they don't see it for its religious uh sense they see it more in a secular sense they don't see it as being prescribed in the old testament like those in the books uh of of say you know deuteronomy and and, and leviticus but rather they see or exodus but rather they see this kind of feast for this kind of holiday is a little bit more secular in nature. So some Jews, both early and modern, have been reluctant to embrace this holiday. But verse 23 indicates that by and large, Mordecai's new holiday was received by the people. Look at verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them, verse 24, because Haman, the son of Hamadotha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast purr, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came... Verse 25, before the king, he commanded by letter, the king did, that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on Haman's own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. And so they called these days Purim after the name Pur. So there we have the name of the holiday, right? Purim, that is to say lots after the singular poor, meaning lot. Haman cast the lot, that is to say he cast the die so to speak, when he was trying to figure out which day upon which he was going to annihilate the Jews, he cast the die and it fell on the 13th day of Adar. He had cast that purr. And here, Purim, is the, the casting of lots, the celebration of this holiday that despite Haman's cast of the die, God was still with his people. As I mentioned, this uh, holiday is still celebrated today. If you'd like to celebrate it, jot down March 23 and 24 on your calendar. It's coming up in a few months. It'll be uh, every year in about, about the springtime. How the Jews celebrate it? How do they celebrate it? Well, they, they do a number of things. They, they'll exchange gifts, as it, it is said in the book of Esther chapter 9. They exchange gifts. They exchange drinks together. They uh, give donations to the poor. They give charity to the poor. They'll eat a celebratory meal together as a family and as a, as a synagogue. They'll, there will also be, and this is the most important perhaps, there will also be a public reading of the Megillah, that is to say the scroll of Esther, which will happen in every Jewish synagogue across the globe. And so if you were to enter a Jewish synagogue on March 23 or 24 of this coming year, you would very likely enter to a public reading or recitation of the people of the scroll of Esther. Men and women, children would be there gathered together. With each passing century, the celebration of Purim has become a bit more demonstrative and a bit more expressive. For instance, in the, uh, during Purim in the 13th century, French and German rabbis took the command in, back in Deuteronomy 25, where it said to blot out the remembrance of Amalek, King Amalek. Well, King Amalek, back in Deuteronomy 25, was a, uh, a great-great-great-great-grandfather of Haman, he had Amalek, Agag, Haman, okay? And so in the 13th century, during the Feast of Purim, French and German rabbis reading into Deuteronomy 25, blotting out the remembrance of Amalek, and thus Agag, and thus Haman, they read into that, and they took it to a whole new level. And so these rabbis, as they recited the scroll of Esther, they encouraged their people to hiss and boo and make cat calls whenever Haman's name was read out loud, which happens over 50 times in the text. Children became especially fond of this unusual synagogue practice and began bringing smooth stones to synagogue on which the name Haman was written. And every time his name was read, he would smash the stones together every time they heard the name Haman until the name could no longer be easily read. They would crash the stones together until it was no longer legible. Others wrote the name of Haman on the soles of their feet, and every time Haman's name was said, they would stomp their feet until it could no longer be read on the bottom of their soles. Today, wooden and plastic noisemakers called uh, Ra'ashana are even permitted in most synagogues to co- encourage a festive reading of the text whenever evil Haman's name is mentioned. They will shake these rattlers every time his name is mentioned. So my question is really, you know, it's kind of selfish, but I mean, I, I was wondering if, if we could do that. I mean, would you guys be interested? Like, let's say, like, let's pick somebody. Let's, let's not begin. Let's pick, like, let's pick the devil. Okay? Let's pick Satan for a minute. And let's, let's just suppose that, that every time I, I reference the devil, that, that you guys hiss or boo or stomp your feet or clap your hands. Okay? What, what would that be like? What would that be like? I mean, I wonder. You ready? Satan. Whoa. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The devil. Oh, yeah. you guys are okay. I need more help from the from the kids over here though. I see some kids still in here, all right? Now you guys, and you guys, you got to be on your toes, because the, the scroll of Esther is a long reading. And so if we were to do this throughout the entire service, you got to be on your toes knowing what's what it's going to be like. I mean, I, I could be saying, you know, I, I could be trying to trick you a little bit. I, I could say something like, I was talking to Chuck the other day, and he asked me, hey, did you see the Clipper game? And I responded, no, I don't watch basketball. Basketball's from the devil. All right. Now, were you booing because I said basketball's from the devil or because I said the devil, Scott? Yes, to both. Okay, just checking, just checking. I don't think basketball's from the devil, but I think it's close. No, no, no alright, alright. And I do love you, you know, Bill Hinckley and all those guys who put on our basketball ministry. They do a good job. Alright, no more booing and hissing. Alright, we won't do that. We won't get crazy in here. But uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll bring the kids in for a little booing and hissing when we say Satan's name. Continuing on, verse 26, the, the rest of verse 26. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, Mordecai's letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them That without, without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. The Jews' acceptance of Mordecai's letter was the first fruits of a now millennia-long effort to celebrate the Jewish feast of Purim. But as was mentioned, some Jews in the land had reservations about this new holiday. I can't prove it from the text, by the way. I I can prove it from um, other ancient texts they are non-scriptural that would cite some of the Jews' reticence to embrace this holiday. And obviously we can point to modern examples of that as well. The biblical text doesn't suggest there was a little bit of a reticence, but it's actually implied, and I want to show you where. The Jews did have some reservations about this new holiday. Most noteworthy among their hesitation was the simple fact that the tone and the rhythm of the holiday didn't match up to how their life was like in the last nine months in Persia. For these Jews, their recent victories over Haman were worth celebrating, but they did not wish to lose sight of how they had gotten here in the first place. These Jews remembered that it wasn't but nine months ago that they had received a letter from Haman that every single one of them was to die on the 13th of Adar. They remembered the deep pain of that letter. They remembered the weeping and the wailing in their homes. And they didn't want to lose sight of the significance of that part of the Purim story. And so in verse 29, I believe, it's my contention, that Esther is responding to the wishes of the people. Take a look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm a second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, again, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth, verse 31, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they, the people, had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. The book, by the way, is probably the book of the annals of the kings, the decree that she had mentioned there. Mordecai's first letter, his first letter, suggested that Purim was to be a national holiday, victory, celebration, gift-giving, a celebratory meal, the reading of the scroll of Esther. It was to be a time of victory. It was to be a day of happiness and joy, happiness and joy, happiness and joy. But some of the Jews also wanted that holiday to hearken back to the, in their minds, that they were once sad and they were once helpless and they were once very fearful. It's funny how some of us Uh, Cannot handle difficult emotions. We see someone who is sad or depressed or fearful. And our first instinct, because we're uncomfortable with it, our first instinct is to say to them, no, 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 you're not sad. You're not sad. You don't need to be sad. Look at all the good things. Look at the bright side. Don't be so sad. Don't be so sad. The futility of forcing happiness and joy upon others is perhaps best illustrated by a children's movie that came out this year. I say a children's movie, it's actually an adult movie disguised as a children's movie. And I want you to take a look at this clip and see how one character tries to force happiness and joy upon another. Take a look. so instructive for life. That was the movie Inside Out. A movie, by the way, which was made by a lot of, uh, with a lot of Christian uh, handiwork, by the way. I uh, personally have friends who, their friends uh, worked significantly on the movie. And so it was very much uh, a, a work of many good Christians. We sometimes suppose that the only appropriate way to feel, is to be happy or joyful. On holidays, we suppose that the only appropriate way to celebrate a holiday or to remember a special day is to be happy and to be joyful. But the truth is, holidays and anniversaries, special dates in your family's calendar, can often be days that hearken in your mind feelings of sadness and loss. At Thanksgiving, this Thanksgiving, my family um, gathered again in Northern California, and we always make we always make my my grandmother's dinner rolls, and she died about this time uh, last year. And so so this Thanksgiving was the first time we had those roles uh, in her memory, not in her presence. And it changed the holiday for me. It changed the holiday for me. I was still celebrating Thanksgiving. I was. And I was thankful and, and at times happy and joyful, but also at times very sad. Mordecai's first instinct, his first instinct when he penned this letter that he wanted to celebrate this holiday was to make Purim a, pure, a day of pure celebration. That's all it should be. And so he made it that. But the people responded. Actually, it says in verse 31, it says they decreed for themselves. The people responded and said, no, you know what? We want more than that. So we decree for ourselves and for our descendants. We decree things that the concern matters of fasting and lamenting to Mordecai. Because we remember what it was like to get Haman's letter. And this is not just a day of pure celebration. I wouldn't be authentic. Yes, Mordecai, Purim is going to be a party, but we're going to talk about the pain too. And as we talk about the pain, as we talk about the horrific, unspeakable letter and the terror that ensued in our hearts as we cry tears and fast and lament over these things, then and only then will we be ready to embrace the victory that we experienced as a people. And thus began by the people and carried on to this day the fast of Esther, which occurs the night before the day before the celebration of Purim 13th of Adar is the fast of Esther 14th and 15th of Adar is the feast of Purim the 13th of Adar was made by the people the 14th and 15th was instituted by Mordecai so my challenge to us is do not stifle past hurts and pains don't suppose that disallowing tears and forcing happiness and joy is somehow normal human behavior, God made us with a full range of emotions. And the Jews of Persia were wise to add in elements of fasting and mourning to their new holiday of Purim. So the next time you or a family member or a friend is sad, or the next time a holiday comes along in which your family members in which your family remembers that there's something different this time, maybe there's someone who's not here this time, then take meaningful time to acknowledge the pain. Take meaningful time to work through that pain as a family and to continually entrust that pain to God. In doing so, I suspect you'll have a much more meaningful holiday. But we've come to the end of Esther. The last three verses. Verse 1 of chapter 10. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on all the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Esther ends as it began paying great tribute to King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus and all his exploits. In chapter 1, it spoke of all his wonderful exploits, and at the end, it spoke of all his wonderful exploits and how he was able to, to tax them as much as he wanted, which I'm sure every great politician is really excited about, despite the fact that we aren't. And Mordecai, for all of his sly business dealings and shortcomings, he fittingly still rose up in power alongside Esther for the general welfare and for the benefit of the Jews living in Persia. As we look back, as we look back, what have we learned from the book of Esther? I want to suggest five things. Five things in your notes and then we'll continue on to uh, the Lord's Supper. Five things that I believe we've learned and these are simple points but they're prof- they have greater implications as you go back and, and read through the story of Esther. Number one... God is king, regardless of earthly rulers. Don't forget that. King Xerxes, Haman, whoever it was in power, it didn't matter. God was king, period. Number two, God is present, even when he is unnamed. Remember, the book of Esther is a book in which God is never mentioned once. He's never named it's never mentioned that that, that he's involved in the story, and yet we see how present he was in this book. Number three, God is faithful, irrespective of our faithfulness. We, Esther and Mordecai, I tell you, they were not the most pious of characters. Go back over the book again. Remember that Esther, she just tried to blend in to the scene, and that meant she probably ate foods that weren't becoming of a Jew, and... And possibly participated in you know pagan ceremonies of sorts mordecai he 's the one that got Esther into this to begin with. What kind of uncle adopted father puts his his daughter into that scene into that setting that that 's questionable i 'm not sure that we can call these two the most faithful, pious Jews, and yet God used them. He was faithful to them and to the people of the Jews, regardless of their faithfulness. Number four. God is protector. He will not forsake his people. Man, if ever there was a time that the Jews were up against the wall, it was this, this book, in the, in this time in the book of Esther. Haman had sent the decree out and the decree of the king of Persia from Xerxes through Haman to the people, that decree can never be revoked, it is said. But God protected them. He did not forsake his people. And finally, God is just. He will judge his enemies. Despite the fact that um, we often don't see that, um, I thank God for the authorities in San Bernardino, how they found these killers, and how they brought them to their end. That is a just and a fitting end to them. But you know what? It doesn't always work that way. And sometimes it feels like the world is so unjust and that God is so unjust and that where are, where are you, Lord? And yet here in this book we learn that God will judge our enemies. It may take time, but He will get around to it. You can bet on it. The Purim Party. The Purim Pain. This book does represent victory. It represents celebration. It represents feasting and gladness and the giving of gifts and and the the greeting one another with, with great joy and excitement knowing, knowing that God spared the life of a million Jews in Persia. This book is about a party, about a festivity thanking God for what he has done. But make no mistake, this book is also about Purim pain, The people told Esther and Mordecai, you know what? We want you to write something else into our holiday. If we're going to celebrate this year after year after year, we want one more thing in it. We want to remember the day that we got Haman's letter. We want to remember the darkness of that day. We want to remember the tears and the sadness of that day. And as we celebrate that day on the 13th of Adar, as we cry those tears and remember that moment, Then and only then will we be ready on the 14th and the 15th of Adar to truly celebrate with happiness and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you bring us not just the great victory, but you bring it to us through the pain and the sadness and the sorrow. And that we know, Lord, that the victory, it would never be as sweet, never be as sweet, if it were not for the pain and the difficulty that you take us through. We see that in the book of Esther. We see that in the story of your son. We see that in the story of our salvation. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table, we recognize and we affirm, God, that pain comes before the victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.